this morning as we continue in our series called The State of Our Union. And as Dennis mentioned in the welcome this morning, this is our way of reflecting on uh, the last couple of years that God has given us uh, to be a church family and thinking about, with His grace, the next couple of years. So we're kind of taking stock of our church family in this series, and we're doing that through the sort of lens of our core objectives as a church. Those are, as we said earlier, uh, the spreading of the message of the gospel, the showing of mercy to our neighbors and to one another. This morning, we'll be reflecting on supporting and shepherding one another to maturity, to growth in Christ. And then, Lord willing, if he tarries and gives us another couple of weeks, next week, we'll think about um, the, the seeking to multiply by which we mean the training and equipping and the sending of pastors and church plants, and finally, uh, sending missionaries, sending this gospel, this same message to the four corners of the globe. And so if you're visiting with us this morning, you've parachuted into the very middle of that uh, series, and we're thinking this morning about our call to shepherd each other to maturity. And we're going to do that using Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And right from the start, let me, let me ask you to pray for me in this text because I love this text. This is the first text I preached in my trial sermon um, now almost 20 years ago. And uh, it was an hour and 20 minutes. So pray, <laughs> pray that uh, we, don't, we don't repeat that this morning because I know also you need to pray for me because I'm competing with idolatry. Romans chapter 1 says that they've taken the image of God and turned it into the image of a four-footed beast and winged creatures like the Philadelphia Eagles. And so I, you know, I know I'm competing, I'm competing with idolatry this morning. <laughs> and this text excites me. Because it actually, um, it, it, it implicitly depends upon my favorite truth in the Christian faith. And that's the fact that we are united with Christ. That we are one with him. That he is our head and we are his body. We are inseparably joined, um, yeah, as head to body. And, and, and so I will be tempted to sort of really want to camp out there when in this series, we've not been doing close expositions, but really sort of in some ways light expositions in order to set up the reflections we want to do on how we've been progressing so far. So y'all pray as we come to God's Word and we think about Ephesians chapter 4. And let me open this way. Let me ask you a question. Uh, you can answer out loud if you want to, or you can answer quietly, uh, but it's really for your reflection. Let me ask you this question. What would you say is a spiritually mature Christian. How would you define that? Now I want you to hold on to that question and hold on to your answer. You can jot down little bullet points or if you are the writing type, go ahead and write a paragraph or a page, whatever. But I want you to get in mind what you think of when you think of someone who is a spiritually mature Christian. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, gives us a, a vision and a process for reaching spiritual maturity. 
And we want to use this as a foundation for our time this morning. Let me read this text for you. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, we pray that all that you lay out for us in this text would increasingly be true of us as your family. Speak to us in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, with each of these sermons, we've been using the same basic outline where we talk about the principle that undergirds that, that M, that issue that we're reflecting on. Then we talk about our progress to date on that principle. We reflect thirdly on the plan going forward. And then finally, we want to sort of pastorally set our perspective uh, on this particular issue. And so let's begin with the, the principle that sort of undergirds our desire to shepherd each other to maturity. And we might uh, sort of begin to get a sense of that principle by thinking about the flow of this text, these six verses here. Notice how it goes from God giving, lead us to his church. And those leaders giving equipment to the church itself, to the body, and then those members giving to each other what's needed for growth. So we're going to summarize this text this way. We might put it this way, that the Christian ministry and the Christian church exists to see that together every member of the church becomes full grown in Christ. That's why we're here. There are other reasons we exist that have to do with mission, that have to do with facing out on the world and engaging the world. But here, when we're talking about the maturity of the church, we're looking at each other and we're thinking about why we exist for each other. We exist for each other so that every member individually and all of us collectively become full-grown people in Christ. We might break this text up into... A little outline here. First of all, you see the mobilizers for maturity, verses 11 and 12. Then you see the measure of maturity, verses 13 and 14. And finally, we see the method for maturing in verses 15 and 16, the, the mobilizers of maturity. He, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, I don't know what you heard about fivefold ministries and all that good stuff, but that ain't what this text is about. 
These are the apostolic offices in the New Testament era at the laying of the foundation of the church. There are no more apostles in the unique sense of apostles. Uh, That era is over. These gifted persons here, the enduring ministry in this text are, are, are most clearly, and we can have some debates about a couple of the others, but most clearly the shepherd teachers. And they have a particular role to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. A real church leader works for your equipping and your edification leading to your maturity. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. He says, him we proclaim. You remember this from Colossians. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That was his apostolic ambition was to present every Christian, the entire church to Jesus on the day of Jesus' coming fully mature in Christ. And he says in verse 29 there, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. True Christian leaders are not doing their jobs if they're not working hard for your maturity, for your full grownness in Christ. However, let's be careful. Our job is not to produce the maturity itself. That's not how it works. Some people come to church they hear the preacher preach and they lean back, get down deep in the cut, fold their arms and look at you like, make me mature. Go ahead. I dare you. Preach, preach a sermon that make me grow. Go ahead. That ain't, that ain't how it works. Our job is to equip you and to mobilize you for the work of the ministry, which in turn produces the growth. Your Christian leaders are merely mobilizers. I'm merely called to give you what you need in order to play the part God has assigned you in the body. And ultimately, that's what leads to maturity. Now, the second thing we saw on the floor of this text, verses 13 to 14, notice now the measure of maturity. How do we, how do we define maturity? How do, we, how do we picture it? What does it look like? Verse 13 says that, that we get to do this equipping and mobilizing work until we notice all Attained to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the positive side of this definition that we keep on this equipping and you keep on building up the body until every Christian attains a couple of things. Unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God which he parenthetically sort of defines for us as mature manhood which he then sort of clarifies for us as involving the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he gives us the negative side. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. See, maturity is not childhood. It's not a boat without an anchor tossed by every wave. It's not a kite without the string being held. 
blown by every wind of doctrine, by scheming. So what is the measure of maturity according to these couple of verses? We might put it this way. It's when the whole church, as one body, thinks and acts like fully grown Christ-like ones. It's when the whole church, as one body, thinks and acts like fully grown Christ-like people. Or to use the language by other texts, when we all reach such unity and knowledge of Jesus Christ that we all are fully grown in Christ. No longer tossed around and gullible like children. See, beloved, in God's design, there is no maturity for you without me. And there's no maturity for me without you. We're in this thing together. Your growth is connected to my growth and everybody else's growth. And everybody else's growth is connected to to your growth. And my growth is what it means for us to be the body of Christ. Joints and ligaments and parts bound together in one body. Sharing a common destiny and life. So go back to that question I asked you in the introduction. What what does it look like to be a spiritually mature Christian? I think often our understanding is way too individualistic and way too self-reliant. So when I ask that question sometimes with groups, here are the kinds of things that that people say, and they're not wrong, they're just not sufficient. Here are the kinds of things that people say. Uh, A mature Christian reads their Bibles. Amen. But you realize that in the first century when Paul wrote this, Christians didn't have a Bible. So maturity has to be accomplished without everybody owning the Bible. Okay? So so they say things like they have a quiet time. I'm still not sure why it must be quiet. (laughs) Since since we're called to praise him with the harps and the cymbals and, and all that good stuff. But anyway, time with Jesus, right? Time with Jesus. You go, amen. That's that's right, that's right. And they, and they say that mature Christians are probably those who share the gospel with others. Amen to that. Hallelujah. But the entire vision for maturity for many people is essentially Lone Ranger Christianity. It's essentially just me walking with Jesus, reading my Bible, having some times of quiet reflection. Very, very rarely Will people even say that a mature Christian is a member of a local church? And yet, this vision here of maturity assumes that every person is a member, connected with the body, playing a vital role in the body of Christ. And almost never will someone say that a mature Christian is someone who has been helped by others to grow. We often think of them as someone who's helping others to grow. But this text says that our growth is interdependent, that we need each other, 
that we supply to each other. And that means that the most mature people among us are going to be the people who say, not, not who say, I grew this way because I read my Bible and I've been, so, I've been breaking off Burkhoff and Bavink and, and Grudem. Grudem's the light stuff. I'm in the deep end of the pool. That, that, ain't, that ain't maturity. The mature person is say, you know what? My, 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 my fifth grade Sunday school teacher is the one who broke down the gospel for me. And, and my middle school basketball coach lived so differently that I was interested in his life. That was Thierry's testimony, remember? And that basketball coach still disciples him to this day. The mature Christian is the one who says, my mother, so faithful, so godly, is the one who all my life has been dropping the scripture into my life. And certainly the mature Christian is the one who says, my church family has helped me and taught me and encouraged me and blessed me, making me the person I think I am right now. We don't get to a full-grown reflection of Christ without each other, beloved. We need each other to mature. So that's the image that Paul gives us here in this text. We're not to think that we are mature simply because we listen to preaching. That's a great thing to do. That's an essential thing to do. And we're not to think that we are mature simply because we listen to preaching and we get a few little nuggets here and we're always sort of sucking on the milk of the word. Remember what Paul says over in Hebrews chapter 5? He says there, you, to, those right, to those people then, he says, by now you ought to be teachers. Yeah. And then he points out their immaturity. He says this, you need someone, Hebrews 5 verse 12, you need someone to teach you again the, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the work of righteous, righteousness since he's a child. Then Paul says this in verse 14, now talking about maturity. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish evil from good. He's teaching us now what maturity looks like. Constant practice, encouraging one another to learn this discernment to separate evil from good. And very clearly the implication is to choose the good and do the good. Or he puts it a different way when he writes over in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. He says, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. You see, the the picture of, of maturity here is not only growing up into Christ, but as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, it's actually having the mind of Christ. That we think Christ's thoughts after him. That our thinking is mature and our living is as innocent as little children. Be mature in your thinking. Be a baby in your actions when it comes to evil and wrong. That's what we're after. And we're trying to get there together. And what's the method in this text? We talked about those who mobilize. We talked about the measure of maturity. Also in this text, verses 15 and 16, Paul gives us the method for how to get there. Notice now, he says now, instead of being tossed to and fro and all that good stuff, he says, rather speaking the truth in love. There it is right there. 
speaking the truth in love, what happens? We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. According to those two verses, the main way that God matures you and I as his body, as his people, is through what we say to each other. That we speak the truth and that we do so in love. This means, beloved, it is never a waste of time to sit with another Christian, to open the Bible, to open our hearts, and to lovingly apply the truth to one another's lives. We're in this, we're in this Martha world, so busy about many things, and you can, you can hear the, the restlessness of this world because that idea of maturity for certain people just seems like ah, that's, that's not doing nothing. We need to do something. Well, there are many things to do. But this is the merry heart that chooses the better portion. That sits with the family and speaks a word of truth in love. And this is how the growth happens. Now, let me do a little pastoral work right here on this point of speaking. We have to speak the correct things. And we have to speak them the correct way. The text says here, the truth in love. And Paul in the rest of this chapter really keeps coming back to this issue of our mouths and what we say. So look with me at verse 25, Ephesians 4, verse 25. Paul says there, therefore, having put away falsehoods, another way of, of making this point, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Striking it, and he's basically saying, when you speak falsehood to a brother or sister in the church, you're lying to yourself. We're members of one another. And, and all of us know it's no good thing for us to lie to ourselves spiritually. Amen. For us to think of ourselves as something that we're not. Or to tell ourselves things as if they're true when they're not true. That never goes in a good direction. And it doesn't go in a good direction in the Lord's body. Notice the next thing he says, verse 29. Not only truth, but grace. Ephesians 4, verse 29, Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up. There's the idea again. As fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. God sets the agenda for our tongues. And he rules out any unwholesome or corrupting talk. Cursing, lewd jokes, slander, gossip, maliciousness. He puts an X through that and says the only thing I want from your tongue is what builds up my body. 
Speak the things that build up. Speak the things that minister to a person in their need. And speak the things that fit the occasion. So, beloved, there are some true things we can say at the wrong time. Anybody know that? So God calls us in maturity to be discerning enough to know what to say when and how. Verse 31. Paul's not done with it. Notice what he says there. Words that lead to unity and peace. Ephesians 4, verse 31. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I'm sorry, that's verse 32. That's a good verse too. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. This is a wonderful high bar that in the body of Christ it's not to be any argument and dissension and cutting each other down and slandering and belittling of others. Not in God's people. Amen. Not among the chosen ones. Not among the ones beloved by Christ and bought by his blood. Amen. No, God says here, we just speak those words that lead to grace and love and building up. Amen. Because that's how he's going to grow his body. So beloved, it's, it's vitally important. And I don't know who this is for. But it's vitally important that we be a community of people that has no patience and tolerance for gossip, for slander, for suspicion, for half-truths. Those things do not lead to Christ-likeness. It's vitally important that we have a conspiracy to build each other up and not to alienate each other. That we have a conspiracy to promote love for one another and not to promote anything that resembles dissension and disunity. This is critical, beloved. And again, I don't, I don't know who this is for. I, I trust you're, you're listening to the sermon and listening to the Spirit of God speak to you and affirm things to you and direct you in, in various ways. That You do that homework with the Lord right now as, as you do this sermon. But Realize that, that whispering and, and realize that, and this is the other thing, we can do those things with an aura of godliness, can't we? We, we can gossip while pretending like we're caring for somebody, right? We, we, can, we can just raise questions, right? I got a question and I just, I just wonder if you can help me with, with the question, we can raise that question at a time, in a way, with people right, right. that actually isn't about a question at all as much as it is uh, a, a, a rebellion and a, and a, and a subversion and a, and a pushing against leaders or a brother or sister. Y'all know. So, The main way God does his work in our lives is through the words that we speak to one another. And as the only creatures in all of existence who speak like God speaks, we must be careful with our words and treat our words as precious. That's how we grow. 
Now, one last thing before we get to sort of progress. I spent too much time on this part. I told y'all to pray that I didn't get trapped in this text. But here's here's the last thing to say here to to draw our attention to uh, in verses 15 and 16. He says, for us to mature as we ought, we have to get each part working properly. Did you see that? In this case, what that, that, that means is we have to get each member of the body, each part of the body connected to the other parts of the body to receive and pass along the word of God in love throughout the body. So any amputated parts are not working properly. Any parts that have been removed or set aside, any parts that have been bound so that they don't function as they ought to, that, that's, they're not working properly. And to that extent, the growth and the maturity of the body is hindered. We want every Christian to grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. But let me think about that. If just one person was mature in that way, that person would be a dynamo. To get 136 of us moving in that direction, growing in that way, what force would Christ for his glory be unleashing on the block and the world? Whether it's the D block of our jails or the 1600 block of our streets or the four corners of the globe. That we should become fully mature in Christ has to be the most potent thing that God could leave in the world among human beings. So what's our progress? Well, if the measure, just three quick statements here. If the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ is the definition of maturity, then the first thing we have to say is we ain't there yet. (laughs) None of us. So comparing ourselves to others or thinking we have individually arrived, that's a significant spiritual problem called pride. All right. Here's the second statement. If maturity requires every member now to be connected to the body as a whole, receiving and sharing the word, then we ain't there yet. Some of us are not yet connected the way we ought to be. Practical examples, okay? Tardiness, absenteeism, individualism, isolating ourselves. Those are significant spiritual problems that retard the growth of the entire church. A third statement. If we are all supposed to reach maturity together, then we have to see ARCs maturing as a growing or expanding or a moving target. It's not a static thing. It's not a fixed thing. Why do I say that? Well, in 2015, April 2015, by God's grace, we planted a church with right around 60 members. Praise the Lord. And in the two and a half years that we've been a church, by God's grace, he's more than doubled that number. We're a membership now of about 136 after last week's members meeting. Okay, every time you add someone to the body, much less double the size of the body, there, there are more persons to love and more persons to give love. And there, there are sort of more calculations on, are we all there yet? Are we getting there? Are we, are we growing? So this is forever going to be a moving target for us because more than the Marines and, and more than our, our sort of educational system, we must be the people who leave no one behind. We all grow together in this maturity. So what's been our strategy so far? Well, beloved, we're just a two-year-old church, and our strategy has been very meat and potatoes, very basic. 
You can think of it on a sort of neighborhood level. You can think of it on the sort of uh, fellowship level and on the leadership level. On the neighborhood level, we just tried in these couple years to do two very basic things that we hope contribute to the maturity of all the saints. Number one, we've tried to just get into the neighborhood. And, And that's harder than it sounds. But we just tried to get into the neighborhood with our services, get into the neighborhood uh, with our lives, our social lives, and so on. We started with all the staff and the elders living in the neighborhood, and as I said last week, about half of the original membership. Well, the other thing we try to do when we get in the neighborhood is just have public services like this, a Sunday morning service where we preach and sing and, and pray God's Word, and Thursday night Bible study where we dig into God's Word verse by verse. That's been the sort of meat and potatoes, basic skeleton system of our sort of getting into the neighborhood to grow together. Well, then we've tried to encourage relationships and fellowship, and so we've done like three things basically there. We've, we've tried to encourage fellowship uh, in various ways uh, for men and women. We started out, there were, were some folks who were hosting, and I think this was a wonderful foundational part of our early life as a church, we're, we're hosting those Friday night fellowships. I'm told they were wonderful. The one or two times I tried to come, they left me outside, literally in the snow, knocking on the door and, and wouldn't let me in. You know what they said? They said, we were praying, Pastor. We didn't hear you. <laughs> Ain't that right, Colin? <laughs> it was your house, brother. Yeah. <laughs> and our brother Daniel started a men's fellowship. It meets about once a month, and all the men are invited to that. They get a meal after service and to care for each other. And, and we've had some um, women's gatherings as well. We've tried to encourage participation in small groups. And we try to encourage building one-on-one relationships. And we'll come back to all of those in a second. On a sort of leadership level, we, again, have tried to be kind of simple and, and, and foundational. And, and there are about three things that we've decided to do there as a leadership. Number one, we, you, some of you will recall, have been with us these two years, we started out by organizing the, the, the church into shepherding groups. Uh, and so each elder, each pastor had a, a number of members that they were uh, not the only ones to care for. We, we all care for all of you, but, but was the sort of first point of contact uh, for members in the church. Number two, uh, we decided to invest in the older women of the church to do that Titus II work. Teach the older women sound doctrine and what accords with it, what goes along with it, so that they might, in turn, be able to teach others, the younger women also. And we did that with a conviction that that most of us in in our church experiences have been in in churches where that's actually not been done. Just a, a large omission that serviced more than half of the church. And so we tried to give ourselves to that. And then number three, we tried to give ourselves, 2 Timothy 2, 2, to investing in future leaders and and those who we hope would would grow to be uh, leaders in in the Lord's congregation. And by God's grace, we've made some progress. We've managed to get into the neighborhood. Our our services are here and and to hold our meetings here. Uh, As I said before, Daniels did a good job of gathering men for the monthly fellowship. We have between seven and ten small groups Uh, that are going on at any given time. Uh, We have one-on-one relationships that have been forming kind of naturally in in most cases. Uh, And though we started with the shepherding groups, we've we've had to suspend them because of changes and movements in in the eldership. I'm hopeful we'll we'll come back to that and, and get that going so far or going again. 
Right now, if, if small groups are a way of being connected and, and speaking the truth in love to each other, um, there's progress for us to make there. We, we've got, in those seven to nine small groups, we've got about 50 members who are participating in those groups. That means there's another 86 or so who aren't. So part of what I want to encourage you to do is to commit in this year to sort of thinking through layering your fellowship with the body. That every member have at least one one-on-one spiritual friendship that's intentional about caring for each other, praying for each other, and speaking the word of God to each other. That every member layer on that one-on-one a small group that they are a part of. Whether that's a block group or a discipleship group, or whether you make Thursday night Bible studies something akin to your small group that you plug into sort of a slightly bigger level of fellowship than just one-on-one, because this is not long range of Christianity, but something smaller than the whole in order to get sort of closer to each other. And that we layer over all of that, of course, active participation in the life of the church as a whole, gathering together on Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, going out for various outings together, and, and certainly being on mission together. That's the sort of framework for the progress I think we need to make and the the sort of plans that I want to talk about now. Now, keep in mind what the strategy was in verses 15 and 16. The main way that God's going to do his work in our lives is by us speaking to each other the truth in love. That's how we are growing up in Christ. That's what we equip you for as leaders. And so we want that kind of layering to our spiritual lives together. And there's some things we want to do at the sort of church level to encourage this and some questions I want to ask you at the individual level for your own application, for you working this out in your own life and in your own lane. All right. So the first thing I want you to pray for at the, at the sort of church-wide level, at the leadership level, is that the Lord would continue to supply elders and pastors to the congregation so that we might be able to shepherd as effectively as we think the Lord has called us to do that. We praise God for what he's doing uh, already and calling our brother Dennis to serve us. Uh, he, he brand spanking new. You know, he's still got the new car smell. And, and I love that. I love that. Uh, and, and there are others of you whom I think and I trust and I believe the Lord will raise up to serve uh, in this capacity. But as a congregation, that should be a regular matter of prayer for us. That the Lord would grow and send elders and deacons and those to serve in that way. And, and part of the reason I want us to pray that is because those are, as the text says in verse 11, gifts that Christ gives to the body. We'll be blessed by those gifts and that very practically we can get back to the, the kind of shepherding structure that we talked about. Here's the other thing. Um, we want to encourage, not that it isn't happening because you keep coming, but we just want to explicitly encourage um, deeper enjoyment higher valuation, and more timely participation in the gathered meeting of the church. So what does that mean, Pastor T? It's a lot of words. Be on time. Early, even. Stay late. And talk to each other. So let me say something that might sound heretical to some of you. There is a sense in which the main thing that's happening on these Sunday mornings 
the most important thing that's happening on these Sunday mornings is not the singing. (gasps) It's not the prayers. It's not the preaching. Oh, pastor. The main thing that's happening on Sunday morning is us hearing the singing, praying together, hearing the word, and then sharing in it together. It's the sharing in it with one another that makes the body grow. I mean, you hear hear a sermon and you look to your left and that brother's asleep. You can nudge him. That's love. Nudge now, not not, not elbows. Just just nudge. And, And more importantly, you can talk with them after the service. How you doing, brother? If you're like me, you could just make it awkward. I see you was nodding. <laughs> you know, long night. <laughs> How's the family? Listen, beloved, listen, because, you know, we're having fun with this, right? But listen, if somebody sleeps on the word of God, there's something there that needs to be examined. They're Christians and they love God's word and they love Jesus. And we trust that about each other. That person who's asleep, something's happened there. At least they're tired. Amen. And maybe just need an encouragement that they might have missed in the word, right? But it might be a situation where they're struggling in some other ways, right? And, and we want to know that as a family and as a body. And we want to be able to encourage and to speak into that. So, so all seriousness, come 10 minutes early. Stay 10 or 15 minutes later. Talk to somebody before the service, even during the service, after the service. This is not performance. Amen. This is family time in the living room. Right? And we want, to, we want to sort of have that feel. All right? Incidentally, it's why we don't use the stage. It's why, you know, I'm happy we're using the screen. But don't get stuck on the screen. Don't start acting like we ain't worshiping because we didn't have the lyrics on the screen. I couldn't raise my hand. Yes, you could have. You could have held the bulletin right there and raised the other hand. Like, like this right here. It ain't about what's happening on the screen. It ain't about performance. It's about our hearts being engaged with the Lord and with each other. All right? So make Sunday mornings an enjoyment, a value, something you prize and come to early. Apply Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. What happens here together is what helps us mature. I've already mentioned small groups. Uh, We want to encourage more small group leaders. Uh, We want to encourage, as I've said before, more block groups. And we want to encourage more of us to find a way to get more of our lives into the community and into these groups and on mission together. Let me say, uh, I said this in the first sermon, that you would hear this a number of times. And so let me, let me bring it up again so I keep my word. This is yet another reason for us to either move into the community or get more of our social lives into the community. This togetherness and this bodybuilding that we're seeing in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, you will notice from your experience, it's just harder if you're not a part of the community. You know, if it requires one more fight with the traffic Amen. after work, to get the small group, Amen. then it's just amplifying that fight against the flesh, yeah. 
which wars against the spirit anyway and, and induces us to make excuses, right? Um, That's just harder. You know, it's not, not evil or wrong, just harder, right? So you either have to be committed to, I know that that's a harder thing for being a part of the community, and I'm counting that cost, and I'm going to pay it. You either have to just be committed to that and explicit about that, or you have to go, you know what? For my own soul's sake and for my connection with the church family, actually, I need to make what initially might even be a harder decision, but in the long run, be a more effective decision and root my life in the community by living next to my brothers and sisters in Christ and in the neighborhood and growing and taking advantage of the natural ease that comes from proximity. So leave that with you. Yet another reason. Let me say again, you're not in sin if you don't live in the community. Right? This is a matter, <laughs> this is a matter of freedom. Amen. You shouldn't be feeling guilty if you make a different decision. Amen. Christ has given you that freedom. Amen. I'm not going to try to make you feel guilty. I'm not going to try to pressure you. I'm just going to encourage you that this would be a good thing if the Lord would have you do it. Amen? Finally, individual discipleship. So we're going to wrap up real quick. Individual discipleship. So we want to be involved in the whole. We want to sort of have some more intimate groups that we're fellowshipping in and, and, and doing ministering in. Uh, and then we want to come down to the, to the one-on-one. And, and listen, we're still going to be an introvert-friendly church, Okay. Uh, I'm an introvert as a pastor and, you know, sometimes I love y'all. I love y'all. I do. But sometimes I don't need to be with y'all. I just need to be by myself. Just need to be by myself and, you know, playing Xbox or something. That's just doing me, right? So, um, so this isn't about eliminating space for people to sort of pull out and, and rest when they need to and things of that sort. However, all of us need a, a Barnabas in our lives. And all of us need to be a Paul to somebody. Amen. Barnabas was the one who went and found Paul and encouraged him uh, and, and sort of got him plugged into the life of the Christian church in the early century there. And Paul was a, a teacher and a discipler of many. We, we all ought to have that relationship with at least one other person. I love to tell this part of my wife's um, spiritual journey. I don't think she knew I was going to tell it this morning, but I think she's fine with it. Just... <laughs> Just keep looking this way just in case she ain't fine with it, right? <laughs> but there was, a, there was a moment where um, we were discovering this thing called discipleship. We were new Christians, maybe in our first year of, of in the faith. And we were like, well, y'all keep talking about this discipleship stuff. What's that? And somebody explained that to us. Like, oh, that's dope. You know, and reading the Bible. This is in the Bible, too. You know, this ain't just something Christians made up. It's what Jesus said we should do. So, uh, you know, she was like, let me, I need somebody to disciple me. It's a very godly woman in our church at the time and an older woman we all respect and, and still do. And uh, she too had not been in a church with a culture of making disciples. So this was new to her too, even though she'd been a Christian 30, 40 years, right? And so Christy approached this lady and said, hey, I've been praying about something and I want to ask you something. Would you disciple me? And, and the, the older woman kind of panicked a little bit. Didn't quite know what that means. She's like, I, you know, I raise my kids. I can't be nobody else's mama, you know, and what you, what you talking about, right? And, and she said, let me pray about it. And uh, she went away for a little while and prayed about it. And then she came back to Christy and the answer was no. And that just deflated my wife. I think it just gutted my wife. And she made a, she made a commitment then that insofar as she was able, if anyone ever asked her to invest in their lives that way, she'd find a way to say yes and not say no. 
And to the best of my knowledge, she's kept that. And it has been one of the things that has caused her to grow and flower as much as anything. And, and to see that in the lives of many others that, that she's been involved with. So we all need that in, in our lives. Now, here's, here are a couple things real quickly. If you're thinking, yeah, I want to be a disciple, I want to ask somebody. Let me, let me give you a couple things real quick. So I, I'm going to use Chrissy's story to give you an exhortation. Number one, if someone asks you, don't refuse. Don't refuse. Trust God and try. It's really a matter of Christian obedience. The Great Commission is go into the world and make disciples, right? So if God has called you to do that, he's going to supply you in doing that. So don't refuse. Trust God and try. Number two, so that's if you're asked. Now, if you're asking someone to disciple you, ask only one person. Don't be that dude that's done ask like six people and you spend the time with like six different people. And then at some point they look us away. Wait, no, I'm discipling. No, I'm discipling. And we, and we figure out we couldn't disciple 16 other people because everybody was spending time with you. Ask one person. One person at a time. Don't be that person that gets other people left out. All right, number three, here we go. Do not ask a pastor. Do not ask a pastor. Remember, Ephesians 4, it is about the body doing this with each other. The front lines of pastoral care and disciple making is the membership. The pastors have responsibility for equipping people to do this. And the pastors will often have responsibility for sort of uh, shepherding people who are in more difficult circumstances. Right? So now we, we need we need cap for that. We need space for that. Happy to spend time with you. Love spending time with you. We will be doing individual discipleship because we're called to do that too as, as, as individual Christians. But don't, don't make all of this sort of flow to the leadership and clog up the church. You understand what I'm saying? Y'all, y'all do know we love you, right? All right? Not saying we don't want to be with you. Just saying we can't be with you all. Here's the other thing I want us to think about in the year going forward in terms of plans. So we're sort of layering our lives this way, individual, small group, whole church, matrix of relationships. Here's something I want us to to do as a church going forward this year that's a little bit of a niche, a niche idea. Uh, And that's, I want us to, I want us as a church family to sort of develop a way of encouraging married couples in particular. I'll say that for a couple of reasons. Remember that slide we looked at last week about households in the community? That 80% of them are headed by a single family or a single parent. That 80% does not represent a number of people who don't want to be married. I would think that most people who are single at some point would like to be married. The problem we have, as we talked about last week, is high levels of mistrust in the community, high levels of, of just um, brokenness that's been caused by forces that act on the community and caused by uh, individual bad decisions, low numbers of marriageable men. And we just cannot accept that as the status quo. We cannot resign ourselves to the idea 
that God's design for families can just be left aside. Without condemnation and without superiority or pride or things of that sort, we want to build a culture in the church that spills outside the church of encouraging and supporting and promoting, this is the key word, healthy marriages. See, just being married is, married is no magic bullet. And sometimes I fear I hear people, I hear pundits who don't understand the research very well talking as if it is, or people just need to get married. No, no, no. You don't need to marry that buster if he's hitting you upside your head. You don't need to be married to that dude if you're a Christian and they're not. You don't need to be married to that person just because you have a child. There's some things that sometimes, very often actually, have to be worked on first. And that too is going to require the whole church. So what I would love to see us do this year is have a kind of mentor couple ministry. Where we take married folks who've been married longer than seven years and we pair them with younger married couples to sort of walk with them until they hit that seven year mark. Why seven years? Because there's a fair amount of research that says that if, if in that seven year period you, you learn how to walk together and, and you sort of learn how to put your life together and learn to do things like talk to each other and forgive each other and so on and so forth, chances are the marriage is going to be healthy long term. So that, that first five to seven years is actually a, a pretty formative window. And folks who've been married longer than seven years have been through that window. And if they've been married much longer than seven years, guess what? They've seen some seasons in their marriage. And so when the young couple comes to them tripping, you know, they don't get all caught up in it. They were like, son, chill out. <laughs> it, ain't, it ain't really that serious. You know, sis, you tripping, you know. And just folks who can just be brother and sister together caring for each other. So I would love it if in 2018 we would launch a ministry like this, first of all, to build ourselves up and to shepherd ourselves to maturity in in our marriages, but then also to begin to engage others and to offer this to uh, the community that we care so much about. This isn't the only sort of niche need we have. Lots of other things we need to do, encouraging singles and so on. But this is where I think the Lord would have us start. Amen? Amen? Questions, comments, concerns about any of that? Okay, let's conclude then with perspective. <laughs> Go ahead, Lex. Got to be quick, though, bro. Oh, go hit me later. All right, so Langston going to hit me later. Y'all can hit me later, too. Uh, some questions for you to ask yourselves individually. You got them in your bulletin. Uh, there are four of them there. I'm going to add one. The one I'm going to add is, how will I move into the community or get more of my social life in the community for the sake of mission and maturity? But think about how you will bring people into the gospel and into the church, how you plan to sort of do your part to teach them to obey, how you will model for them obedience to the Lord, And how you will then be a part of sending them out to do the same with others. Which brings us to our final P, perspective. There are a couple things I want us to keep in mind as we do this. And the first thing that we have to keep in mind, beloved, is that Christ atoned for all of our sins and lives in us. There is no maturity that can really result if we don't lean heavily on the gospel of our Lord. 
all the things that have ruined us and caused us to stumble, all of our sins, he's died for. He's taken them to the cross. He's he's suffered our judgment for those. And three days later, he was raised from the grave for our justification. So now, not only has he taken all of our sins to the cross, when he rose from the grave, he's also giving us all of his righteousness for our lives. And beloved, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, this is how maturity begins. It's trusting this Jesus. Putting your faith in him and turning from sin. And amazingly enough, by that same faith, being united to him as one. Becoming one with him. He your head and you a part of his body. And as you can see from this text, his plan is not to sort of forgive you only. Not to declare you righteous only. His plan is to take you into himself and to grow you up into his likeness. Beloved, you've come this morning and you feel like you're really aware of your sin and you're really wondering if you can ever be different from what you are right now. The answer is yes, a thousand times yes. You can be marvelously different from what you are right now. And that's why Jesus has come. His making you different and making you like himself is his main goal for your life. You can be different. In fact, the Bible says you can be born again. You can have a new and eternal life. The Bible says the old can be passed away and a new will come if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he offers that to you freely. And if you have never confessed your sins to him and turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, that's what we hope for you right now. That you would do that. And that's what we would like to help you to think about if you have questions. See us after the service. We would like nothing more than to help you discover this newness of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christian, we never leave this newness of life. It is a deception of our flesh and a lie from the devil that new life gets old. It doesn't. It's always new. It's always eternal. Christ's blood is always cleansing us and pleading for us so that we never bear our sins before the Father. And so this effort to grow where there'll be so many ups and downs, this effort to grow, we cannot lose sight of Jesus. And we cannot lose sight of his sacrifice because all the grace we need to grow, we find in Christ and being connected to him with his body. Second thing on perspective. Maturity involves pressing toward the mark. So there's the grace of resting on Christ. But now remember Philippians 3, verses 12 to 16. Paul writes there, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect. So Paul says, I haven't sort of reached that point where I'm there, right? Then he says this, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I love that. Paul says, I'm going to press on to get more of Jesus because Jesus already got me. And then he says in verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, this is what he says to us who are reading this letter and God wants us to know as we look at Paul's perspective there. Then he says this in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So there's a pressing 
toward the mark. And a realization that we haven't arrived yet. And that realization brings us no condemnation, just further encouragement to hold on to what's true and to keep pressing. Here's the third thing that this will require of us in terms of perspective. It's going to require the hard work of prayer. Colossians 4, 12 to 13. Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Then he says this, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Herapolis. Epaphras is our model there. We are to pray for each other diligently that we might all stand fully mature and fully assured in all the will of God. I'm reading a book right now with one of the brothers called Letters of a Servant Leader by Jack Miller. He was a PCA pastor in Philadelphia who left the pastorate and began a uh, missions organization. And in that capacity of leading that missions organization, he would correspond um, with uh, missionaries on the field and church planters and pastors. And in one of the letters, a guy is writing to him and saying, basically, the church isn't growing uh, numerically and uh, the pastor is worried about finances of the church and, and there's some little conflict in the church. And, and Jack Miller has this wonderful way of writing and he writes back to the guy. I wish I could read the whole letter to you, but, but there's one line in there. He's giving him like four things to focus on. And the third thing he tells him to focus on really strikes me as pertinent to our conversation today. He begins to address the man's perspective about the church members. And he asked this question. Do you see the congregation by faith? Do you have a picture of the stubborn ones changed by grace as you pray? Or have you mentally given up on some of them? That is good. Search me. I thought that's a good word for Pastor T. Be sure to look at all the members of the church, especially the stubborn ones, the difficult ones, however we describe the quote-unquote troublesome ones, and all the other ones with faith, believing that Christ is going to cause us to grow. And so that's the last thing I want to leave you with. In your relationships with the brothers and sisters in this church family, do you look at those relationships by faith, believing that we're joined together with Christ and that it's his purpose to cause each and every one of us together to grow up into the fullness of Christ? Believing that whatever's hard right now in that person's life or hard between that person and others won't be always. God has the final word, and that word is maturity. Full-grown maturity in Christ. We do this by faith, beloved. Let's pray together. Father, we pray very simply, help us to grow. In all the ways that are true growth, in all the ways that matter, in quiet ways and visible ways, help us to grow. 
We want to be like Jesus. We want to reach the fullness of Christ. And we don't want to get there alone. We want to get there with all of our brothers and sisters. Forgive us of any lone ranger Christianity that's been in our hearts and our thinking. Forgive us of our neglect if we have neglected the body. Help us, O Lord, to attach ourselves joyfully and and healthfully and, and deeply and meaningfully with our brothers and sisters and to be a joint and a ligament that supplies a word of truth spoken in love to another joint and a ligament until the whole body grows and builds itself up in love. We can't do this unless we abide in you and you in us. And we can't do this without prayer. We can't do this without your word. We can't do this, O Lord, without faith. So by your grace, give us everything we need to grow to be like Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us and has made us a part of himself. Help us, O Lord, we pray, to have the joy of growing in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.